Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. BTG gang, welcome back to another episode. This week, we are tackling the topic of tariffs. If you work in the industry, you are very aware of this existential threat that began in October and ran through about last month. It was the thing that was put into place by the sentient enema we had of a president at the time. Right now, those tariffs are on hold. So yeah, we're going to talk about these tariffs, the way they affected importers, suppliers, distributors, every piece of the puzzle. Uh, What we're going to do is we're going to start by talking to an importer, then we're going to talk to a distributor, and then we're going to talk to a buyer. Uh, It's a jam-packed episode with lots of different people going in. The first person we're going to chat with is Pierre, who runs Bobo Selections. Bobo Selections imports some really amazing small family-owned and operated wineries in France. So within his book, wines you might know are like uh, Domaine Jousset in the Loire Valley or Matthew Beret in the Rhone, all delicious wines. So we're going to start with getting his perspective as an importer dealing with these tariffs. Here he is. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. What's going on on your end? You're in France right now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in France. And actually, I didn't travel to, to the U.S. for for more than one year now. That's wild because uh, we had that Zoom happy hour with Karen, right? Yeah. I want to say at the summer. start of the pandemic. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, there is the travel ban, uh, I mean, foreigners to, to come to the U.S., well, and I think and, it's reciprocal, uh, right? Because I don't know if I can come to Europe right now. Can I? Yes, 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 yes. That's uh, that's uh, the same for you. The feelings and, mutual, uh, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know, like right now, it's uh, it's coming back. It's like uh, the third wave for for us now. We are back to lockdown. You the curfew right now is seven p.m. right now, right in France? Uh, now it's lockdown. Uh, we are back to lockdown. Uh, mm. since it's we started the lockdown um it was on sunday so our mm. president spoke last wednesday um and we are actually like pretty bad uh, like the worst country in europe right now so um, so now you can't go uh, more than 10 kilometers um from your place uh, if you want to go uh, over 10 kilometers you need to fill a paper and to mention why you are going like further away yeah. and uh, you need to have a, a good reason so it could be a professional reason or a family reason but um, you you have to stay within 10 kilometers uh, fr- from your place and this is um, active uh, effective sorry uh, like every day because before uh, before this lockdown it was as you said 7 p.m so after 7 p.m everybody needs to be home but now it's uh, every day and uh, for three weeks, they said. So oh, man. See, but it's really, really bad here. And the restaurants are just, you know, like, they are, I mean, they didn't open since September here. That's rough, dude. But there's yeah. financial support at the moment right now for those businesses yes, by the government, that's right? That's correct. That's yeah. correct. And that's that is what's pretty good when you look at uh, Italy, Spain, or other countries. Um, we are, I mean, our restaurants get a lot of support and a lot of financial help uh, to face this very difficult time. So that's at least the good news. Uh, and they're also doing, I mean, like you guys, I think, so, like takeaway and stuff like that. But yeah. Um, it's the cassoulet don't hit the same though in a to-go container as it does in the cast iron. <laughs> That's right. 
So you, you normally come to the U.S. a fair bit and you actually spend, I'd say, a large portion of your time here. You're not even able to visit a lot of the producers necessarily if you're in lockdown mode. But yeah. what, what's kind of been occupying your time for the past 12 months if you can't be doing market visits or getting out yeah. in the market showing the wines? So actually, uh, Chris, I've been visiting like a lot of producers uh, because first I can travel because it's my business. So mm, when you yeah. have like a, a professional reason, uh, you can do whatever you want. Uh, mm. You just need to fill in the paperwork, you know, and, and, and mention if like the police arrest you on the road, uh, you have to justify why you are so far away from your home. So um, for the last 12 months, I have been visiting a lot of producers, mine producers, but also like new producers. Uh, today, we just received uh, a new winery that I, I just sourced from Alsace. It's called Son of Wine. I don't know if you if you have heard about this brand, and I'm super excited about, about that. I have been doing also a lot of... What's the labels. story with that producer? Tell me a little bit about it. So uh, this is Farid Yaimi. Uh, it's a guy born and raised um, uh, in, in Alsace. <clears throat> and uh, uh, this guy, uh, I've been um, working for Christian Biller in Alsace. Mm -hmm. uh, he has been renting a space in his winery to make wine and also using uh, renting his uh, vinification equipment. Uh, very, very talented guy. Uh, so when he started uh, to learn about wine, he didn't want to go to school. Uh, because he didn't want, he knew what the school was going to teach him, you know, about like all of this additive, all of these uh, mm -hmm. traditional techniques. And uh, Farid, uh, you know, he, he told me that it's uh, in Alsace to buy a, a parcel, a piece of land, it's, it's really expensive. And also, um, you do not have access to the good terroir. So mm -hmm. he decided to, to be more uh, a winemaker than a farmer. So he owned two hectares but he's purchasing a lot of grapes uh, to make wine. So all of the grapes he purchased are biodynamic for, I would say, 90% of his production and 10% are organic. But obviously it's minimum organic, but most of the time it's biodynamic. Mm. And Farid philosophy, it's a deep, extreme natural wine producer. So uh, he doesn't uh, use any sulfites in any wines. Uh, it doesn't filter any wines. All of the wines are fermented with indigenous yeast. There is no additive at all. And uh, the also good points that I like, because you know that I like to source natural wine that are clean and precise. And uh, when there is an issue, when it's mousy or when there is a VA that is too high, um, it doesn't uh, release the wine. For mouse, it would keep, for instance, if you bottle wine, it tastes it and there is a mouse he would keep the wine in bottle in his winery uh, and, and until the mouse disappear. Yeah. You know? So very, I mean, amazing philosophy. And he's purchasing grapes from like different location. Um, I'm going, I'm starting with uh, an orange pet nut. So he's purchasing the fruits in Spain. Uh, the region is called Nieva. And uh, it's- Oh, isn't that where Ismael oh, yeah. Gonzalez wines? They're with I'm Selections de la Vigna. He, he makes so, a pet knack called uh, Nieva York, um, oh, which is yeah, super yeah, good. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right, you're right, you're right. So this is it. This is this region. So Farid is, is purchasing, uh, it's 200 years old, Prefiloxera Verdejo. Mm -hmm. uh, so he goes there, he harvests the fruit by hand, puts all of the fruit in his uh, truck and drives the truck with the grapes 
back towards us. Mm -hmm. uh, and when the grapes arrive, uh, he's taking 10% uh, uh, of uh, these grapes that he direct press. And if it's freezing, uh, the, the grape juice, mm. all right, to keep the natural sugar. So 10% of the volume is frozen. And then the other 90%, they go for a skin contact of five days. Um, and after five days, there is an aging in concrete tank for seven months. All right. Mm -hmm. So he has an orange wine um, after, I mean, after five days. So the, the orange wine is going to be blended with the grape juice frozen in March. So this way he can add natural sugar to the mm -hmm. tank and not adding any sugar. And when he has blended his orange wine with the 10% of grape juice, then he bottled the wine and the re-fermentation uh, restarts in the bottle. So you have an orange pet nut. I love Verdejo. Like that to me is like one of the most unsung grapes in Spain. A lot of those vineyards in Nieva or in La Seca, the vines are like 100, 150, 200 year old vines. Microbio is doing yeah. a great job there. So it's cool. I think yeah, the vines are also right. like the land's pretty cheap, relatively speaking. So and uh, he's making 150 cases total of these orange pet nuts, and mm. I get 50 cases for the US. And uh, I mean, this is one of the best pet nuts I have ever tasted. It's so so good. And after when he bottle the wine, the, the the pet nut is aging for another seven months. So the total wow. um, duration is about 14 months. And uh, you know, like so, Farid when he's purchasing grapes, there is always like a story. Uh, it's also always like, uh, um, I mean, a, a human relationship mm -hmm. uh, with like the people he's working with. And he told me like, I want to buy grapes that I would never be able to own, right? So that's the Verdejo, but he's also buying some red Muscat from Alsace. Uh, he's buying some Pinot Donis from the Loire. He's doing some, making some Beaujolais. So it's a bit like a flying natural winemaker, but mm -hmm. everything is vinified in his winery in Alsace. And uh, super interesting guy, 53 years old. You know, he has been like introduced in his early stage to Pierre Auvernois, uh, Thierry mm. Puzla, uh, Marcel Lapierre. So he has been he has been learning like a long time ago with, with like the pioneers of natural wine. And he told me also that at the beginning he was making a lot of vinegar. So <laughs> he has been like dumping a lot of wine, but he really learned by making mistakes, you know, by observing by asking a lot of questions to like the pioneers. So mm. he's really like an autodidact. I don't know if that makes sense in English, uh, but he really learned on his own. He, he has never been to school. Uh, and the wines are, are really, really good. So maybe like a good starting off point for listeners would be uh, explaining what Bobo Selections is, the kinds of wines that you import. Okay. Uh, so yeah, my name is Pierre Gastaldillo and, and I run Bobo Selection. So Bobole Selection, it's uh, a natural wine portfolio that I started three years ago. So this portfolio, it's part of a larger company uh, called T. Edward Wines. Uh, T. Edward Wines is working with a diversity of wines, uh, biodynamic, organic, and traditional. Bobo Selection is uh, the natural wine leg, I would say, uh, that focus uh, only on these uh, very small farmers making wines that are very alive. So it's, uh, it's about being organic or biodynamic in the vineyards, harvesting by hand, uh, fermenting the wines with indigenous yeasts only and not adding anything to the wines. The only additive that we can get in our wines, it's a little bit of sulfites when, when it's necessary uh, because Bobo Selection is really looking for 
natural wines that are clean and precise. Um, voilà. So when did the tariffs like come into effect for you personally? Like when did that period start? So it's two uh, different periods. The first one was October 18, 2019. Um, we received uh, the first tariff. So the first tariff, as you know, was 25% on all the wines uh, at 14% alcohol and under. So um, that was bad, but not extremely bad because uh, we are importing uh, a couple of wines that are above 14% alcohol. So this one didn't get the tariff and uh, also sparkling wines. So we do a lot of pet nuts and this one didn't get the tariff. So, um, and the next round uh, that was the war started uh, this year, mid January uh, and the 25% the tariff were or on all the wines, uh, no matter the alcohol percent, all of the wines got the 25% tariff. So that was really, really hard for us. But fortunately, uh, on March 12, we, we learned that uh, the tariff uh, were on pause for four months. Uh, and uh, now we are just waiting for, for more news uh, if the, the government, the US government is going to keep uh, this tariff or if they're going to lower the tariff or if they are just going to remove the tariff. So what I know is that the Europe uh, and the US uh, are kind of discussing some negotiation right now. And uh, these four months are for uh, the two parts to, to, to be able to find a solution and maybe to remove tariff for both sides. So that first round of tariffs, right? You were talking about how it only affected wines that were below 14% alcohol. Yep. And I feel as though, especially for some of the producers that you have in maybe the Loire Valley or mm -hmm. some of those natural leaning producers that are lower in alcohol, right? Because a big part of natural winemaking, right? Is that you're harvesting the grapes when they're physiologically yep. ripe, but not overripe. You're making balanced yes. wines that aren't, you know, excessively high in alcohol, or you're not yes. adding a lot of things to them. Do you feel like, you know, natural wines were more affected by the tariffs than other styles of wine? Were there any regions that were particularly affected compared to other regions of France? Yes, totally. So um, the first thing it's yes, uh, the, the north of France, I'm just talking about France because it's my expertise, but uh, the, the northern part of France, it's most of the time wines that are below 14% alcohol. So I'm thinking about Alsace, uh, the Loire Valley. Uh, Burgundy, uh, like this region, like uh, really suffer from the tariff because most of the wines, I mean, all of the wines uh, are under 14% alcohol. The region that were not that uh, impacted by the tariff uh, were the southern region. So Languedoc-Roussillon, uh, Beaujolais, um, the Rhone Valley, Provence, because it's much more sunshine over here and uh, a lot of wines are above. 14% alcohol, especially the red wines. So that was okay. Um, but then the natural wines, I think, suffer more uh, compared to the traditional wines for several reasons. The first one is that um, in my portfolio, and I think most natural wine producers in this planet, they are not making wines, um, how can I say, like they are not going to make wines above 14% alcohol just to avoid the tariff. 
what they want to do is to make a wine that is balanced, that reflects uh, what they want. So they are not, uh, yeah, manipulating the wines to avoid the tariff. But if mm. you compare with like the traditional sector, with like a lot of vinification technique, you know that you can reach the alcohol percent that you want. So if you pick up the grapes and the, uh, your wine is supposed to be at uh, 13% alcohol, then you add a little bit more sugar to it. It's called chaptalization. And uh, your wines will be uh, at the alcohol percent you want, right? Or mm-hmm. you can also have harvest later. But if you harvest later, uh, you're going to get a super ripe wine. You're going to lose a lot of acidity and the wine is not going to be balanced anymore. So our producers, uh, they are not doing this. Maybe there was a shift in conventional kind of like winemaking technique to maybe boost alcohol a little bit in order to appease the export market to the United States. Exactly. And you know, like I'm thinking about the region, um, the region where I'm from, (laughs) Provence. Uh, You know that the rosé from Provence, it's pretty big uh, in in the US. Yeah. Uh, And and I know that uh, like some producers, uh, they they were making rosé from Provence above 14% alcohol. Oh man, um, some big boys. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, like there is no more freshness uh, when you are drinking a 14% uh, alcohol rosé from Provence. So you add a little can... sparkling water to it, make a little spritzer out of it. <laughs> exactly. Maybe that's what you got to do. Great, great for cocktails, but there is also mm-hmm. another technique. It's to add um, tartaric acid, acidity. So, you know, you can add like a lot of stuff to, to your wines. The wine is not alive anymore, in my opinion, but you have a wine at 14 point something alcohol and you still have some acidity, but there is no more balance. There is no more life. It's, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's not so good to drink. And so, I'm sure that the, um, I'm sure the tariffs were at the forefront of your mind, since you're the one importing them to the United States. How much, when you were speaking to your producers, people like uh, Bertrand Jousset um, and his wife, Lise, when you were talking to them, like how present were the tariffs in their minds? Was it something that they thought about on a regular basis or did they see it as like, oh, this is the importer's problem, not my problem? So we are lucky in in our company to to work with a diversity of producers, right? Mm -hmm. And Bobo, it's, uh, it's really like those very small guys. And honestly, Chris, um, I didn't feel comfortable uh, to ask my producers for a discount because I know like uh, the huge amount of work uh, they are implementing in the vineyards, in the mm-hmm. winery, and all of the cash flow issue they are dealing with, right? So I didn't feel comfortable to ask the small guys any discounts. But uh, we are also working with uh, some big and larger size winery. So we had this conversation with the big guys, you know, because obviously they have more money and they can mm-hmm. afford maybe some help. Uh, and most of the time um, didn't get so much success. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but some people and uh, some like your longtime partners, uh, what we did it, it, on the 25% tariff, we split in two. Uh, they gave us a discount of 12.5%. And uh, we took the other 12.5%. So we were able to keep the same pricing as before. Mm. So for the most part, you feel as though the the weight, the financial weight of the tariff fell on the importer's part. In terms of the relationships that you have with distributors, because 
for people that mm-hmm. maybe aren't super aware, right? There's multiple tiers in the beverage distribution system, right? That yeah. you work as an importer, but then in a state like Texas, for instance, right? Yeah. The wines are then purchased from you by a distributor. And then that distributor then sells them to restaurants, right? Yep. So yep. how much does that distributor end up eating in terms of cost? It, it sounds like at least for some of these producers, it was an even split between winemaker and wine importer, not necessarily with wine distributor, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. I think, Chris, um, every, everyone has a, has a different uh, business strategy. Yeah. So I'm not sure about my competitors. Uh, everybody has chosen like a different strategy, but mine was the following one. Um, I wanted to, to have, I would say, uh, the lowest uh, price increase as possible. First, to support our producers, because if I was increasing my uh, wholesale pricing, obviously, like I would sell much less wine. And I wanted to keep selling wines to keep some decent volume so my producers can get some cash, but also to support uh, our clients. So in Texas, it's you through David Mayfield. But in New York, where we are selling direct, it's to support all of the restaurants, mm-hmm. wine shop, wine bars that are already suffering a lot uh, from the COVID situation. So the idea was to really lower our gross profit as much as possible. So we can mm-hmm. support the producers, we can support uh, our customers. Uh, and I think it pay pay well because because we have been moving like a decent amount of wine during a very difficult time and i think also people would remember that and Mm -hmm. also the final point is that we are working with uh, a diversity of country Uh, we are importing wines from europe but also uh, from the us and from south america from new zealand from australia from really like almost every single uh, wine country so um, if you think about it, the tariff were only for France, uh, Spain, Germany. So if you think about it, you can like almost make no money on this country mm-hmm. and keep making money on the other countries that didn't get the tariff. Mm-hmm. But someone who is only importing French wine, that's a different you know, uh, situation because if he doesn't do something on the price, I think it would, it would go bankrupt, right? So yeah. we were lucky to be a company that worked with a lot of uh, foreign countries. So what we were losing in France and Spain, uh, we were kind of, uh, we were supported by the other country, you know, if that, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. I guess another question I have for you is, we talked about how in March, the tariffs, you know, were put on pause. How is that affecting your kind of like export import decisions at the moment? I guess my question is like, this is on pause for a period of time. We don't know if the tariffs are going to come back, whether they're going to go away permanently. Has this created any sort of like logistical challenge getting wine to the U.S.? Is everyone trying to bring wine in while these tariffs have gone away temporarily? Yes, I think so. Uh, we are today and it's it has been about two months now. Uh, we are suffering from huge logistics uh, delay. So before we were expecting when we send a purchase order to the winery, we were expecting the wines to be in our warehouse uh, two months after that. Now it's about three months. So mm. we are adding an extra month, but this is not because of the wine tariff. Uh, it's just the entire industry that is going back 
pretty strong to business. Mm. And I think it's because of COVID. So for a long time, the containers uh, going from Europe to the US uh, were on pause. There were less containers going in and out. There were less ship. Uh, but now um, with, uh, I think, the vaccine and, you know, like uh, so much things going on in the positive way, uh, the, the, the logistics uh, partners told us that there is like a huge demand of, of container and we, we can't find a space on a ship uh, to put our wines on a container and, uh, and to ship it to the US. So today we have a huge logistic problem, but this is not due to tariff. This is uh, due to the COVID situation. And mm. yes, what you said is totally right. Uh, I think a lot of importers are shipping as much as they can to be uh, able to avoid the tariff if they are coming back uh, in two months or so. That's also another uh, another concern. Uh, I think like this is a very tough situation right now because we are being told that uh, there is no tariff for four months. So we have no idea if in four months, I mean, in two months now, uh, the tariff will be back uh, to 25%, if they will increase, if they will be removed, you know. But uh, we have to act, and, and this is why it's very difficult. It's because I'm changing all of my pricing right now, mm. uh, and I'm very afraid that in two months, uh, the government say, okay, we are back to 25% and I will need to change all of my pricing again. But why changing pricing is pretty, uh, a pretty big concern. Uh, I don't think in Texas it's a price posting state, but in New York and New Jersey, um, this is a price posting state. So any pricing that I want to change now, so we are April 6th. That means that it will be effective June 1st. Yeah, for listeners that maybe don't understand, right, in Texas anyways, the price that an account buys a wine for is totally flexible, right? There's always a lower yeah. price. There's always a different price yeah. depending on the volume <laughs> that you buy, the relationship that you have with that particular importer or distributor. Yes. Whereas in New York, the price is the price. There's no discounts that are immediately or arbitrarily ap applied to things. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Everything has to be price posted. And when you price uh, like, uh, let's say, like April, they are going to review all of your pricing for the following months and the pricing will be effective the months after that. So, mm. again, we are April 6th and any pricing that I want to change now will be effective June 1st. But maybe like what I'm going to change in terms of pricing now, maybe on June 1st, who knows, the tariff will be, will be back in place, mm -hmm. you know? So that's yeah. why it's very difficult uh, to know because we have no idea what is going to happen uh, after this uh, discussion between Europe and, and the US. That's wild. What, what sort of like communication did you have with the government, at, if any, during this time? You know, you're a small boutique importer, you bring in some uh -huh. really amazing wines, but it's not like T. Edwards has a huge lobbying body, right? That can knock on the door of, no, you know, definitely. some trade office, right? You know, <clears throat> yeah. so for the smaller players in the game, like what could, what were you guys doing to make your case and explain how this was so damaging to business? But we have not so much impact. We are kind of small. If you, if you think about it, mm -hmm. we are a small company, but the only thing we can do uh, it's to write letters uh, to like the governors 
or something like that. But I think you have been doing the same, Chris, right? Or in David Mayfield, I know that you yeah, have been yeah, doing yeah. Some. sending letters, sending you know petitions. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Stuff like that that really show uh, like um, the damage of having this tariff uh, in place, and uh, that a lot of people are going to lose jobs. Not only importers, but also restaurant people, wine shop that are going to make maybe less uh, money. Um, so yeah, it's all about like. Uh, you know, like being all together and fighting all together to, to kind of speak loud and, and to show how bad are those tariffs and that the tariffs are not only damaging the Europe, but they are also da damaging uh, the, the, the US, some of the US companies. You know, I think a big part of what you do, right, is you help introduce people in the United States to these different wine regions and different yeah. wineries that people aren't as familiar with. But a big part of that experience for a lot of sommeliers and wine buyers mm -hmm. is going over and seeing these producers, meeting with them, having you know relationships through salons and tastings like that. How do you think that will return? How long do you think it'll take? What do you think needs to happen in order for that kind of growth? Oh, so one thing that we have been doing and uh, that's worked pretty great um, for, uh, especially during the first lockdown, um, we we started to to kind of uh, FaceTime uh, our producers because everybody was locked down, everybody was sad, and we wanted to you know like all of these sommeliers that lost their job when the mm -hmm. restaurants uh, closed, and uh, all of those people that were home, uh, we were trying to put some uh, light you know uh, mm -hmm. during their day. So every Monday during the lockdown, we were um, FaceTiming uh, one producers. Uh, oh, cool. It was one week, it was France, the other week was Italy, the other week was Spain. And we had like really nice turnover. So for about like three months, every Monday, uh, it was called the Chi Edward Morning Show. And oh, cool. uh, we had our producers just, you know, like speaking for like 30 minutes, uh, showing some video about their vineyard, what they are doing, because these people during lockdown, they didn't stop working. They were just pruning the vines, working the soil, planting trees and stuff like that. So they were sharing these moments with uh, our US friends. Um, and that was really awesome. But I think like there is so much frustration, right? For like, mm -hmm. uh, we are like still in lockdown. One year after the, the pandemic started, we are still locked down. Like so much frustration. And I know that's when maybe the vaccination would be uh, done to a lot of people and maybe this situation of COVID will be uh, not done, but so much more easier for everybody. And the wine fair will be back, you know, it's going to be huge, Chris. <laughs> you have to be there oh, yeah. because we're going to throw some huge party. We're going to, I mean, always being careful and, you know, like not, not trying to, to spread the virus, but just, I think like everybody is missing so much the facts of tasting wines, of meeting the producers, of visiting vineyards, of learning more about what these incredible people are doing. But it's also like the case for the producers, like the producers, it's really a pleasure for them, you know, like to see you guys in their winery and to explain what they are doing for for a long time. So it's like everybody is missing each other, you know, and when mm -hmm. the, the situation will be back uh, and all of the wine tasting and, and, the, and everybody will be allowed to travel, I, I think it's going to be fantastic. Sounds good, man. I'm looking forward to it. Me too, man. Great speaking cool. with you. Thanks great speaking for, with you. For organizing this. That was oh, awesome. this is great. This is fun. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks, Chris. Take care. Yeah.
Bye. Yo, big thanks to Pierre for coming through and dropping some knowledge via Zoom for the BTG gang. Appreciate you all listening to him. Go out and buy his wines. They are available through David Mayfield if you're here in Texas. And I'm pretty sure they self-distribute in uh, New York with T. Edwards. Uh, Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. Anyways, we're moving out of the world of importers and we're moving into the world of distribution. So, right, the distributor buys the wine from the importer who buys it from the producer. The distributor then sells it to the restaurant account or the retailer or whatever. It's a very convoluted, complicated, multi-tier process, and it's even more complicated in some other states. But in Texas, at least, it's a three-tier system. All of that to say... The next person we're talking to is Britannia Perez. She works for Victory, which is a mid-sized distributor. They've got a wide range of different wines, so I figured it would be a good contrast to a very small portfolio like Pierre's. But the one thing about these tariffs, they affected everyone. Everyone was affected in slightly different ways, and Britannia is going to be able to, I think, speak to the ways in which it affected the way she conducted business on a regular basis and the way wines were priced in the market. So without further ado, we'll jump into that. Quick note though, um, Britannia wanted to sit outside so there is a touch of background noise. You might hear some wind or birds chirping. I'm very sorry for Mother Nature getting in the way, but uh, the weather was good. I mean, I'll let you guys listen. Here we go. Britannia, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. It's a lovely day in Houston. So I know. Thanks I know. for being open to being outside and drinking some champagne and catching up. Yeah, what are we drinking right now? What Uh, did you bring? Oh my gosh, you know, since we're going to be chatting about uh, direct imports and fun things like that, I was in our warehouse and I brought La Herre because we direct import this and I felt that it was, it's our ultra ultra tradition brew, so it's our entry level brew. It's made with 60% Meunier, uh, Chardonnay, and then a little bit of Pinot. So it is something I like to show to get people to um, understand this producer and it's, again, entry level, so it's not going to break the bank. Um, you're going to find it on a shelf, probably about what you would find something like Vuve. So it's like, hey, just drink something <laughs> a little bit more interesting. Drink something that doesn't suck. How about that? Agreed. Yeah. So, um, you know, I thought it would be only fitting that we would uh, try something like this. Give well, cheers. Salud. Salud. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think they also make the Les Seven, right? Mm-hmm. Which is made with all seven grape varieties. It is. Yeah, yeah. that's super cool. We get a little small... Um, portion of that each year. We are here today to talk about uh, the way in which tariffs affected distributors specifically. We've had the chance to talk to Pierre, who works for Bobo Selections, which is a more natural-leaning importer. Now I want to move the conversation from the importer side of things to the distribution side of things. And Britannia, you work for Victory, which is based, I believe, in Dallas. Correct. Right? We have um, our main headquarters are in Dallas, and then we have um, outlets in Houston and Austin as well as most, you know, the middle guys do. But mm-hmm. yeah, all of our um, main headquarters are in Dallas, Texas. And you are the state sales manager. Would correct. I be correct? correct? Did I get that title right? Yes. So that director of sales on the wine side. Uh, on the wine so side. I. Our team sells both wine and spirits, but there is... You've got a pretty badass spirits book. There's some fun things floating around very sexy. And, you know, it is um, the work of Matt uh, Daniels and John Garrett. Shout out to those two cats that constantly feed me bourbon and gin. (laughs) But my concentration is more on the wine sales, uh, primarily on premise. Well, fun. Jack of all trades. So maybe we can go back to the start of Tariff Talks, okay. which would have been in late 2019, right? Is that around Correct. the time? Yeah, October. And I remember the actual date because it was two, three, three dates I remember in October. 
my cat's birthday, October 5th, RIP Kitty. My anniversary. RIP? Yeah, Orange Kitty. Ugh, Died no. of COVID? What happened? No, he just, um, he, we found out during COVID that he had cancer. Oh, and so, I'm sorry. You know, the blessing of being at home was that I would have probably never had that time because I'm constantly on the road. But um, my anniversary is on uh, October 31st and October third was when we got the announcements and the panic set in we have a lovely import book maybe we can run people through some of these importers that you work with because there are a lot of them there is so um we are known for our spanish book i feel like we almost cornered the market in that but one of our biggest ones is jorge ordonez um some of our cool kids stuff um and not that jorge's not some of our cool kids stuff is luis dresner um, we work with Uva Imports now. Um, a very close friend to Chris and I is uh, Beth um, Mosher with Valkyrie. So you guys have probably seen some of those lines. But um, And we also have our own DI. So if you ever turn some bottles around that are pretty fun and interesting, it will say Palomar um, on the back of it. So a lot of that we direct import as well. A lot, a lot of Spanish wines in there for sure. A ton of Spanish wine, yeah. And, and then you do have a fair amount of French wine as well. We were talking we about Bourreche before we started mm-hmm. recording. Like I said, it's, I don't want to say 50-50 or 60-40, you know. You guys are very leveraged in France and Spain, for sure. So you said panic started to set in on that day in October. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you say panic is setting in, like, what's kind of your triage? What's kind of, like, the first thing you go to do? Yeah, Um, calm the team down. So (laughs) I work more directly um, with the sales team. So, you know, on average, we have 10 to 11 in each uh, market right now. So you have all of the top reps in each market blowing up your phone and blowing up our brand management phone being like, what's going to happen to RDI? And, and we're going into OND and we have stuff on the water and calming a rep down is uh, 90% of my day. <laughs> um, so really starting with the team and aligning our communication as a management team on how we would um, respond. And did you find out about this through like a push notification on your phone? Was it Michael Barbaro like in a yeah, New, you know, New York Times Daily episode that's letting you know? Like, yeah, what's the- you know, I it's funny. I was really trying to think how did I mean, we were also in so many conversations with some, you know, so many like, like Josefa and Beth and, you know, Instagram and these things where we were constantly fighting and getting ready to write letters and all of that. So I if I really think back on that date. I honestly felt like I was on, on my Peloton and I did get like a push notification. I, I can't honestly remember the, the source, but and then I, and then it just started. And I was going to say, if this is in October that this is going down, mm-hmm. had containers that were on the water uh-huh. that were coming to the United States, Correct. this might be the wine that was on pre-sale. So people have already committed to a specific <laughs> price point. That. Yeah. So what happens in a situation like that um, where... A consumer has committed to a specific price point. Um, We honor it. And that's something I I really pride Victory on. Um, If you guys give us a pre-sell and it says you're going to pay $10.99, you're going to pay $10.99. We signed it. And more than anything, um, my dad always tells me, you only have your word at the end of the day. And so to be with a company that honors that and protects that, especially when we're in a panic and somebody bought 20 cases for a buy-the-glass or a wedding or whatever it is... um, they're thinking, you know, that 1099 is now, what's that going to be? And, you know, mm-hmm. um, so we honor it um, and that felt good. But we also knew in honoring it, we were going to take a little bit hit on the margin. And so finding how to do that with our supplier pals was can't a, be a fun conversation no, you it's know, like splitting the bill but like it's a really big bill yeah, like, do you both put your card out like <laughs> you're the one that ordered that extra ball you know like yeah. what do you do um but you know like you and I've chatted before while we are 
a very big mid-sized company and that's our goal is to be the best mid-sized company. Um, we still have work with a lot of small families and 10% is a lot. And that's what we were first facing. And, um, and we, and you had to front the money when it landed too. So it wasn't like, oh, okay, well it sucks. Let's kind of like chip away at it over the year, but it it's was, like when that container hits the port, hits the you port, gotta, you gotta pay that yeah, money, front that money. And it's a, it's a container, you know, it's a, pallets and pallets and so yeah it's not a it's not a fun conversation because then you know Shane and Saray are coming at us and saying like oh this all seems specifically insane this is going to go up to $12 by the glass or you know what are your thoughts here which high volume account should we extend it to and but we also don't want to forget the mom and pop in the corner that maybe three cases yeah. a month isn't a lot, but it's a lot for a 300 square foot building, you know, yeah. and it's, they're only by the glass and they've had it for 10 years or, you know, whatever it is. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit because maybe some people out there don't really know how that works from like a yeah. distribution standpoint, but you do have your drivers, right? You have Correct. your by the glass pours mm-hmm. where that wine costs a lot less. You can mark it up maybe a little bit more yeah. and still hit that like $15 a glass or $12 a glass yeah. price point. So whenever we have by the glass, um, you know, there's typically a, um, base price that we ask somebody, um, our, you know, pretty bandaid rule or standard rule is that, um, you have to actually pour it by the glass, meaning we would love to see it on a menu. Um, and then we ask you order a full case every time you order. Um, with that pricing, we get what is a DA, which is a distributor allowance. So they are already working with us on saying, we're going to give you $10 a case or whatever it is to get that by the glass price point. That's why we want to honor them and say, okay, it needs to be on a menu and we need to see a case every time you order. So we're already working on very slim margins yeah. and they're already giving us a little bit out of their pocket and we're giving a little out of ours. And now we're trying to take that $1 and cut it into 50 pieces while still mm-hmm. paying a rep a warehouse and keeping the lights on. And it, it became difficult. And so we had a lot of volume um, things on the water that was ordered and um, navigating on what to fight for and what we really thought we needed became a lot of conversations that I was, that I was pulled in at that point. Like, with that, you know, Shane and Saray had a lot of the, the grunt conversations with the bill splitting. I was the girl that ordered all the shit at the table <laughs> and was like, I'm going to sell it. You know, like that's yeah, how, no, that sure. was how I came into that. So, I mean, in terms of the way in which you communicated this to buyers mm-hmm. that regardless of whether it was something they had pre-ordered yeah. or yeah. like they're just trying to build a list out mm-hmm. and they're trying to find their, you know, Bourgogne Rouge that's yeah. not going to suddenly cost them $25 wholesale. Yeah. Like, how, how did you navigate those conversations? How did you pivot from one wine maybe to something else or keep them in that same wine? Yeah, you know, we did more of the latter. We kept them in that same wine. And during the first round of tariffs, um, we made decisions to cut POs and say, we're just not going to do it, um, to split the cost with what was on the water, to go a little bit more where we would like to see ourselves in terms of margin so we could continue to be more customer service facing, which is what we, we always try to do and tell our team to do. Um, but then, you know, comes into the play that we have such a domestic book. And so we, yeah, like how do you sell Bourgogne Rouge to something? Here's a domestic Pinot. Um, we presented it and we mm-hmm. knew what we had stock in and, um, our on-premise team dug deep. Um, we let them know what was on the water and we even went as far to say, this is the anticipated, raise should we go down that route just even gauge what their thoughts were and if they said oh my gosh you know 50 cents 
on a bottle can make or break a placement on a by the glass. And so having those open conversations with them to gauge whether it would mess it up. And then again, like I said, looking at volume accounts that have supported a brand forever, you know, and these accounts that have had something on their list for so long, typically have a relationship with the supplier as well. Mm -hmm. So how do we keep this triangle happy was um, a a lot of conversation. And a lot of these suppliers, right, some of them might have had inventory on hand before the tariffs went into effect. They already had wine here in the States. Yes. And some others probably keep less wine on hand here in the States. How did that kind of shake out? Um, You know, we... Our distributors were really good about letting us know exactly what we had. So we ordered heavy in those brands because, you know, they're, we're not their only state. Um, we're yeah. probably the biggest. And in some cases, we may not be the biggest. But um, working directly with um, folks like Beth, you know, I mentioned her name earlier, Valkyrie. She was able to tell us. Shout when, out, Beth. We know you're listening. Girl, if you're not, not having mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, we she was able to tell us what was landing. She's She's an inventory hawk. So she was letting us know how they put their ship around to stop in China or something crazy, you know, like those, those kids are so innovative. Um, but letting us know what we had on hand, working with what we, um, would know how long, you know, how many days before we ran out kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, protecting accounts. If we had a very large placement at a high volume account saying, all right, we're just going to hold this inventory for this person. Cause they've ran with it forever. And yeah. Shame on us for taking it away from them when they've they've built the brand with us. So you were talking about how maybe in the case of Bourgogne Rouge, for instance, maybe you bring a domestic Pinot Noir into that lineup. So it's like, look, this wine got tariffed. This one from the States, you can get it at that lower price point. Yeah. Did you notice that for those international varieties that are planted in Mm -hmm. Western Europe as well as in the States, you noticed a movement towards domestic production? Whereas maybe something like Tempranillo, which if you're drinking Tempranillo, you're pretty much only getting it from Spain. Yeah. Did you notice any sort of like changes in buying patterns? I did, as well as the way not only our on-premise team was presenting, but the way our chain team was presenting. Um, chain team meaning uh, HEB, Kroger, Specs, and things like that, that we start presenting in the fall for spring. And, you know, HEB, I think. Makes so they're working much further in advance. Much further in advance. So um, the Rosé pre-sell alone something to look at that we do with HEB. And it was a lot more domestic the last year and then this year as well because we couldn't take the risk and yeah. knowing you know we were up against talks again about going a hundred percent tariff and i was like what is gonna it's happen? bananas i mean it literally all of our jobs were just uh very much threatened um and it and everybody in the food and beverage industry is so passionate so you've got to bunch of passionate extroverts being like what the heck is going on a lot of people that also aren't necessarily great at numbers true yeah Yeah. oh my gosh yeah i'm um talk to me about sales and building relationships remind Mm -hmm. me to do my spreadsheet before the day's over (laughs) that's funny yeah so just um yeah you know we saw a change in buying patterns we saw um a change in the conversations we were having with our key buyers and how again protecting the inventory we did have for them and working with them and saying, all right, we've got about 60 days on hand. So we need to decide at day 30 and know what we're going through. And when I was out supporting accounts, I saw a lot more domestic on the list. Yeah. And I love domestic. Do not get me wrong. You know, go, we have so many great producers in our thing. But at the same time, I was like, man, like these guys are just getting hit. And yeah, you know, we, the other part of that is um, you're so, you're so close with so many of these you know, folks over in Spain and yeah. you just immediately think like, this is going to rip him out of his house and home, you know, and it's mm-hmm. maybe that's so dramatic or whatever, well, but I it's think, hard not to. Well, you, know? you guys also work with brands like uh, Lopez de Heredia, mm-hmm, right? Like mm-hmm. regardless of how much that wine goes up in price, people Shout are still going to buy it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But 
there are other producers in your book, yeah. these smaller, maybe lesser known Spanish producers or French producers yeah. that blueberry right yes, like amazing yeah. amazing wines yeah. or the ostatu wines like they don't carry that same name recognition no. that lopez does so where do they fit into this tariff conversation people yeah. are going to be much more sensitive to a price increase on those wines than they might be with like Fair. you get your allocation of lopez rosé you're going to take it regardless of yes. what price it comes in at correct so. um yeah that takes a lot more groundwork very true on the lopez we did um have to increase that price and that was a oof you know um but and we're still very minimal on margin on that one. We're just yeah. like, this is going to solve itself. What do we do here? Yeah. Um, but yeah, you had to fight for those brands even more. And with that, those distributor, those suppliers, vendors, they don't have as much DA support. They're not that big. You know, they don't have a big card to swipe to make this problem go away. Um, it's you have to change the narrative and really figure out how you're going to support them as they're going through way more stress than you're going through. And so you want to push that wine, but at the same time, like, is it going to take a increase and how do we navigate that? So finding the right homes for it and maybe not, um, putting it in, in so many accounts, but honing in on which accounts could support it. And as opposed to supporting 15 by the glasses, we're going to now going to only support five. So we're not hit so hard on it. So not only splitting the percentage and raise, but, maybe not um, going so hard in the paint with the DA and a, a thousand by the glasses and totally, you know, but it shoots them in the foot at the same time. Cause now their brand's not in 15 other places, Yeah, you know, and that's that many less people that it's being poured in glasses. So if we fast forward to when the tariffs get called off, mm -hmm. right, there's a short window of time where they mm -hmm. say, we're going to have a pause on these things. Yeah. And I believe that's in what late February. Yes. That this goes into effect. Yes. And I imagine that there's suddenly this mad dash to yep. get all of this wine oh to the U S as quickly as possible. How did that play out? Um, well, Dave Poss, who's our logistics, um, he's purchasing. So he deals with logistics and, uh, Hillebrand T elementary, all these people that bring in the wines for us. Um, Dave is genuinely one of the smartest humans I know. Um, he uh, dealt with all of us being like, get it on the water. We need this brand. And, you know, like everybody wanted to purchase so hard and, and so fast. Um, but something that we weren't honestly expecting was people were out of containers. Like I was like, should I quit selling wine and only sell containers? Um, That's so funny. There was no container. Why do you think there was a shortage on containers? Because things quit moving. And so there was a lot of stuff. I remember having a conversation with Dave and a lot of things were stuck in um, China. There was some empty containers and they hadn't moved. And then now you have every wine, anybody that has DI wines or importer in the world going after. So it's like, hope you have the best relationship with this person so you could maybe get at the top of the line. Um, yeah. But yeah, we, you know, we put a lot of stuff on order. So again, we just wrote a big check to get the stuff we just had. And now we're writing a bigger check to get stuff to expedite. Yeah. Things you that, know, yeah. and you're making up for not having, cause like I said, we took, we made some not fun decisions to say, well, we're not going to order this. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd want people to know about the tariffs from a distribution standpoint that we didn't touch on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you will see some of your favorite brands take, um, a price increase and, you know, as a consumer, um, I'll speak to that group first. We, like, like I said, there's a ton of endless conversations on the back end and taking as 
as little of an increase as we can that we're passing on to the retailer that you're buying it from, the, the bar that you're setting at. Um, we're not jerks. We're just trying to still make a little money to, to keep the lights on. And in most it. cases, it was split. Like yeah. the the, yeah. the tariff, however much it was, was half of it was paid by the distributor, half was paid by the importer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, and then from a buyer standpoint, I think it's a lot easier to have that conversation because it wasn't like Victory Wine Group was the only one going through this. Yeah, um, our competitors were going through it too, and so the right buyers knew how to really rework their menus and maybe they lost a little bit of their voice on the menu if they're you know very passionate about france or italy or whatever it is and really dove into our domestic book um but so the buyer conversation was a lot easier explaining it to a consumer is is always a tough you know a a tough conversation um but i think it wasn't so it wasn't as hard as i as i was thinking it would be but you know you would see stuff go from $12 $12 by the glass up to 15 and that's a lot. Yeah. That's three extra dollars you're asking somebody to put in the glass. Well, it gets into that idea of value. What's yeah. the intrinsic value of what's yeah. in that glass? Yeah. You know, it's already kind of a black box category with uh-huh. wine. Yeah. You know, it's so subjective. Yeah. What one person enjoys, what someone finds to be a good value, you know, is mm-hmm. totally different than someone else. And then you just arbitrarily add $3 to it. Yeah. And they're like, what? Why did this yeah. go up? And then so. the other thing, you know, they if it's a wine that's very popular and maybe we have it like cool central market or cool H-E-B Heights. Um, they have inventory, you know, they can buy a lot bigger than, you know, our on-premise. So they're wondering why it's still 17 on the shelf and now it's 15 in the glass. And so you're yeah. the person behind the bar is doing the juggling act of being like, well, they probably had 50 cases on hand and, you know, we just have enough for two cases yeah. on the back. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I want them to know, um, that as a whole, the food and beverage industry has really taken some punches this year and it started, it started with tariffs. And, um, the thing I love about the food and beverage industry is we are resilient. Um, we competitor, our, our friend, it was really fun to see, and maybe not fun is probably a terrible word, but really made me proud to see how many letters were written and how many, I received so many emails from and phone calls from our, uh, our, our vendors. Um, and they were, Hosapa connected me with somebody. She's like, he needs some accounts in the woodlands. I'm like, here's 50 accounts that will sign this petition. And here's victory. You know, we sent it out to our team, like write letters, write letters. I took, you know, mailed envelopes with stamps and we'll fill it out for you. Whatever you need. Um, it was really interesting to see that happen. And, um, but at the end of the day, like I said, we took so many, so many punches to the, to the gut on starting with that. And then punches to the gut, to the money maker. Yeah. You know, inventory, everything. Um, but we're still standing. And I think that's, like I said, because we are a financially sound company and we have such great partners. Like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I, I love them all. There's not, there's not one of you I hate. You guys are so good. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> It's hard to it's hard to say that you know I've I've had some folks I've worked with and maybe not been a big fan of but um, shout out Terroir Selections yeah we see you they made it a lot easier than I felt like some of our competitors conversations as they were having so we're we're very fortunate in that situation um, but yeah I just I want you guys to know that um, everybody took a little bit of a hit nobody's being greedy everybody's working on very thin margins <laughs> yeah. and it's going to be a bit before we completely recoup from that. We have to make it up, you know? Yeah. 
It's wild times. Well, Britannia, thank you for sitting down and chatting with me. I rarely get someone that wants to bring a bottle of bubbles to their podcast recording. So this is great. This is fun. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Any excuse to drink champagne on a Monday, I'll take. Oh my gosh, it's lunch. (laughs) Cheers, dude. Thank you again. Cheers, absolutely. Yo, before we get into this next segment, I just want to give another shout out to Britannia. She is truly one of the most hospitable people I know in the food and beverage industry. She works incredibly hard and distribution can sometimes be a bit of a thankless job. So big shout out to Britannia for taking the time to chat with me, bringing a bottle of champagne and just being an all around amazing human being. Let's jump into the last piece of this tariff triptych. We're going to chat with Stephen McDonald. He is the Master Sommelier and Wine Director at Papa's Steakhouse. Papa's is a bit of an institution here in Houston. Amazing wine list, multi-million dollar inventory, just a truly bananas wine program. And they're a program that's very heavily based in the wines of Europe, the wines that we're getting tariffed. So let's jump into that conversation with him. Here we go. How was service for the weekend? We're so busy, man. Like it, every shift is two shift. There's like a regular and then there's a late, late shift. You, you'll have a full restaurant at midnight, man. Really? When do you guys cut off dinner service? Like when does the kitchen close? <laughs> it should be, it should be midnight, but that's not, that's not the case anymore. Um, mm. And we were never, we were never like a late night place. There's a lot of people visiting from Mexico here for the vaccine season. And that's, that's their spring break. They like come up here, get the vaccine, hang out for a couple of weeks, get the second dose. Yeah, and their 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 spring breaks lasted from the week before Valentine's to by the summer. I don't know. That's wild. <laughs> yeah, like there's more of a Mexico City clientele now than there was before as a result of that. This kind of vaccine tourism. Yeah. Ever. What do they typically like to drink? Is yeah. it, is it different than what your Papa Steakhouse guests like to consume? So there's 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 this uh, definitely this familiarity with the fine collectible wines of the world. Um, so you do get a lot of high-end Burgundy and Old Bordeaux. You get a lot of Spanish uh, every once in a while, like the kind of cult American, but it mainly centers on kind of classic regions in Spain. Yeah, I've always heard that. Something like the Emilio Moro, like a uh, sales manager doesn't even live in the US. He lives in Mexico City because it's just, it makes more sense for him strategically yeah. to be based there because they sell yeah. so much Roberto right. Duero in Mexico. Right. Which is good. It keeps, it keeps, right. it justifies having all that stuff on the list. So. Well, fun, man. So I've had the opportunity to talk to an importer, a distributor, and I really want to get the perspective of a buyer, a buyer specifically of predominantly old world wines, the way in which the tariffs affected them, you know? And right. I mean, you work with a lot of California fruit as well, but I think that what's interesting is you're so leveraged in not just Burgundy, Bordeaux, you know, some Spain, like we just talked about, but also like trying to build a list that has verticals where you have like different vintages of things available and how the, this has affected your by the glass placements, your bottle placements, those verticals, things like that. Yeah. So, so we're, we're, we're kind of the anomaly. I probably in most cases that, um, you know, let's suppose that a Bordeaux offer comes through and the prices reflect uh, tariffs that were passed or, you know, price increases because of tariffs that were passed through the system. Maybe they're a smaller operation and they can't absorb or spread out those uh, costs over time or through multiple layers. The prices will just simply be too high. And we're not going to run out of Bordeaux. Uh, We're not going to have too many holes that we can't live with you know, for the next few months, five months. So our, 
our strategy there was just to wait. Like, sorry, I can't buy those. Those prices are too high. And we'll just wait, you know, and then corresponding with some other deals that were happening at the same time with people needing to get rid, rid of inventory. So we were doing, we we were fine. Maybe we can give people a timeline a little bit, right? Because uh, the tariffs went into effect before the pandemic when people were trying to get rid of inventory. So what was kind of like the start of this process for you? And what sort of like preparations, if any, did y'all take in advance of that? And then when tariffs went into effect, kind of like maybe a play-by-play for listeners. So, okay. Oh, just... All the time we have to be forging the relationships, developing the strategy to continually, you know, we have to keep the list relevant and big with all our verticals. So that our strategy with that um, is going back to 2016. And Jack Mason, another uh, MS uh, who worked for the company for a long time, then in New York and then back again in 2016, the, the mission in 2016, 17 was to create the relationships where we could get, for example, some older Bordeaux straight over from France at a reasonable price. And so that project was rolling for, I don't know, uh, a couple of years or so. So when we took a position and invested a lot of money uh, in older Bordeaux, it when the tariff said it made us look like geniuses. Right, because we had already stacked up everything, and we were about as stable and as set as we needed to. So we were we in a great position, and that was simply because we were doing the work beforehand uh, to 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 invest in the right in the right thing. And without so, getting and without getting like too weeded here, maybe we can give people just a very quick understanding of what it's like to buy Bordeaux because it's very different than a lot of other wine buying regions, right? The 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 way in which it's structured with whether you buy Acceler, whether you're buying through brokers, like importers right. working with the same producer, like what's a very quick Sparknotes version of that? Right. So for access to old Bordeaux, you need to make relationships with negotiants, right? And there's, you know, a few big ones uh, and a couple medium-sized ones, but these are ginormous companies that have been uh, in business for, in some cases, hundreds of years, right? And so they're sitting on incredible stockpiles of, uh, in warehouses on warehouses of aged Bordeaux. Now, they are very aware of what the market can bear on those items. And so uh, oftentimes it doesn't make sense to add uh, an import layer and a distributor layer. By the time it gets to us, you know, it's, it doesn't make any sense for the, for the end consumer. The strategy was, was to talk directly to those negotiants and see if we couldn't negotiate a price, then talking to both an import and a distributor level uh, person to see if we can't negotiate a margin that made sense uh, to get it to us at a reasonable price. And all those things, you know, those are very uh, delicate things because you're dealing with people in France, you're dealing with multi-layers of business and a lot of different managers and owners of companies and things, but we made it work. And we made it work because we were doing it all at once. And it was it was a lot of bottles and it was a lot of money. And uh, I think we, we may not have an opportunity to do that again um, because a lot of those businesses uh, shifted out or the same people who we made those relationships with uh, aren't necessarily there in those places anymore. So we, we did it and we went big, but it took a lot of work and it took a lot of money. So you're right, like in a normal circumstance, 
because Bordeaux's coming at you in all sorts of different ways and different small offers. Generally, it's what the uh, importer or the distributor can uh, take on in terms of a capital investment and then, you know, uh, shopping it out to the market that we, we needed to go directly to the source. So uh, you're right. It, buying Bordeaux is, is really is really tough um, because you're kind of at the mercy of whatever's around. So our strategy was just a little bit more pointed, a little bit more focused. So you guys were talking 2016, Jack joins the team. You guys are going to go straight to the spigot, try and build out your old Bordeaux selection. You're doing that over the course of 2017, 2018, 2019, and then tariff talk begins, right? And was there like this, oh shit moment where you guys were thinking to yourselves, what do we need to shore up? What what on our list needs to get filled before these go into effect? There was a little bit of, uh, so we were already set on Bordeaux. So the, the talk then shifted to Burgundy and the fear was, so we, we started going on a, on just a buying spree. Hey, we got to grab everything that we can um, in order to protect that part of the list because it's a different category. You can't just there. No one has old stockpiles of, of Burgundy. It just doesn't exist. And there's not enough uh, to do that with. So the fear was, well, we're going to grab everything that we can. Um, but on these allocations that were scheduled to hit the United States during that time, we knew we were going to have an issue. We knew we were going to have to take them. We knew that we wanted to take them and we knew that it was going to cost more. Now, having that much time to plan, like you can uh, talk to your financial people and start to try to free up the capital to to uh, invest. You can also just kind of decide, okay, well, we can't take a full allocation of X, Y, and Z uh, from Burgundy. So we had a strategy going into uh, tariff time about how we were going to buy uh, Burgundy specifically. And I guess you could say for a little bit of Roan um, as well, but our, our, our main focus was protecting Burgundy and the allocations uh, within that. So then tariffs go into effect. A couple months afterwards, we fall right into the pandemic. How did you guys manage the balance between a decrease in business during that time? I mean, you guys did to go, right? That you did to go steaks, to go Burgundy, to go Bordeaux. <laughs> like, well, and and the I guess starting in the end of March, it was completely shut down. All three steakhouses completely shut down. Everybody in those buildings were were furloughed. There was there was zero going on, so it wasn't until late April, so a month later, that they started experimenting with how like a curbside situation would look, um, and you know they sold a few bottles, but it wasn't uh, that wasn't their 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 focus. Um, they were just trying to see what what this new curbside thing would look like because at the time, you just didn't. It maybe this was not going to work and they were going to have to shut mm-hmm. it down again. And, and seafood maybe power we... in a to-go container doesn't sound as much fun. <laughs> right. Most everything uh, on that menu is kind of designed uh, with very few things, kind of designed to be eaten there. But uh, so there was a lot of uncertainty, obviously, and there was kind of a skeleton crew trying to s- experiment with what they thought could work. And, and, and wine was very much not on their, their mind. You know, they had everything kind of locked up, protected temperature, everything. And so it was just going to be like, okay, well, we're going to wait this out. And to the owner's credit, like they weren't interested in 
doing any sort of like fire sale or discounted this, whatever. I, I think that was a testament to them being able to see that longer vision, even though their entire company and their entire business was suffering uh, immensely to, to hold on to that investment and not let it go because he was, he was certain that when this all uh, got back online, we'd be happy to have it. And, and for the most part, that's absolutely true. So to walk through the timeline a little bit more, uh, I was asked back in the middle of May. That's a, that's when we were allowed to have in-person dining. And it, again, it was Skeleton Crew, 25%, just me. And that's where- You were busy, I bet. I mean, solo there, some yeah, on the there. floor. And so that's when the talk of like to go big, big bottles to go, like, you know, the governor allowed that, um, which was a, a huge, it, it, it changed the face of the business. It kept those- Having bottles being able to be uh, to go out the door, you know, list price, you know, again, we're not offering any any discounts there. It kept those concepts afloat and made those it, it made the the numbers for those months. And so, you know, as the the summer ramped up, and then we went back down, and you know, here comes the fall. Uh, it was it was a combination of the people in the restaurants' enthusiasm and and uh willingness to get to get after it from a wine perspective and still those to go bottles that kept us afloat that kept protected our jobs were you finding that in terms of like to go bottles of wine were people coming in for like faust were people coming in for like stag's leap artemis or was it like people wanted their drc to go did you find that people were using the wine list as their their version of a grocery store? Or was it truly like cherry picking through the menu, finding these like gems? Ma mainly blue chip wines, because right, because you have to think about at that point, people had been drinking in their homes and uh, developing relationships with their grocery stores and their and their retail people, you know, since March. So now we're in the the summer, the fall. Yeah, they they can go to their other places to get the Fausts and the and whatnot. But yeah, so it was it was a lot of blue chip things. It was like like what you said, some really odd but carefully thought thoughtful uh, selections that people were taking uh, out the door, and that was that was cool to see. To be honest, like we, you know, on a side note, like I saw guests come back from this. You know, maybe we saw them for the first time eight, nine, ten months later, a new wine drinker because they had time. To, to try a bunch of stuff at their house. They had time to uh, watch all the movies and the doc mm -hmm. documentaries and the, and the TV shows and maybe read some books or watch some, uh, read some podcasts or whatever it is. Like you'd be surprised. It was a very much more informed consumer on the backside of this than I ever expected, particularly mm -hmm. from younger people. Interesting. Getting back to the tariff thing, I mean, you were talking about how some of these things like increased in price, you knew there there wasn't a whole lot you could do about that. And you're trying to keep these allocations coming in. I mean, did that affect your buy the glass program at all? Because it's one thing to take, you know, a hit on something that bottle people can expect to pay a certain amount. But for those buy the glass pours, you need to hit a certain dollar price, right? You need to have that $14, $15 glass of wine. Um I'm curious in that in that that standpoint how that affected things. You know, like what? So we have, like you mentioned earlier, we have an enormous inventory, and so <clears throat> we had to get really creative about moving things into that by the glass spot that we already had. So, like you said earlier, we have a humongous inventory. Now, with the exception, just a few 
key spots, say for example, your uh, $15 or $20 Chardonnay, Cabernet, Pinot Noir, we were able to cycle through and be like way more nimble and move like a case of uh, a higher end Pinot Noir or a higher end Cabernet or a higher end Chardonnay and move, you know, a case here, a case there, 10 bottles of this, eight bottles of that. Same thing goes with any old world section. So I was able to cycle through six different Barolo by the glass, Baroli by the glass. Um, and we we just weren't buying anything. The directive was to decrease that inventory and to utilize the by the glass program as a tool to do that. And so, you, you know, you, you just got to be checking everything every single day and uh, making the appropriate menu changes and and all that sort of stuff which is which is way more work but it but it worked and i would say between may and october i mean purchases were the lowest they've ever been in any stretch of time you know uh that that restaurant's been in existence if you don't want to throw out hard numbers as to the dollar amount that was decreased in inventory, what percentage would you say inventory, total wine inventory went down? It's going to sound such a silly percentage. Um, so, or if you want to throw out like the dollar like amount, 50, I mean, whatever word. Like, like considering the, the, the whole, I, I won't disclose the dollar amount, but it was like 15% of total inventory value over the course i think if you have to start like march to now and uh that's really difficult uh <laughs> <laughs> because that's that's a lot of dollars um and you, when you kind of have like a especially like a trickle of business you basically have to be uh moving moving through dollars you're not going to necessarily replace right so uh a lot of the dollars because when people came back, there was this, there was this, hey, I need to cling to something familiar. So let's suppose that, you know, uh, like a Jordan Cabernet that we're very likely to always have on the list, you're, you're going to replace those dollars, right? So mm -hmm. it was trying to sell the dollars off that you weren't going to replace, that that was the challenge. So yeah, 15%, that was, a, that was a lot, maybe my greatest my greatest moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. You know, around that same time, though, that you're having to cut back on your purchases, distributors were also like fire sailing all of these wines that they had. I remember talking to a friend and seeing some of the closeout lists, wines that were being closed out at insane prices, right? Was that a challenging thing? How did you navigate trying to take advantage of those closeouts that were going on at a time when buying was so limited? Right, so we took we took a, a few of those opportunities, um, but it was like everything came with the uh, directive. Okay, you got this opportunity. You got you know a million dollar uh, a million bottles of something that was you know half the price that it used to be. Um, get it out the door. Like, yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know. Uh, totally. Absolutely. So, you know, you're still you're still dealing with, you know, in our particular case, like you're still dealing with very, very smart business people, uh, people who know what it is to invest in something over time. So it was just more of a conversation than it probably ever was. But uh, you could still uh, have those conversations and uh, they were listening to you and 
um, you know, hey, this is the smart thing to do. Please trust me. <laughs> then yeah. like, all right, okay. Um, is there anything related to tariffs that we didn't talk about that you think is unique to PAPAs yeah, or um, unique to the buying perspective? I think like, yeah, yes. I think that like through all of this, that whether it was tariffs, then tariffs and pandemic is, you know, for a buyer to have built up really good relationships and honest relationships and really strong lines of communication um, where they feel like everybody in the process can be honest with you. Like sometimes just knowing how they dealt with um, absorbing the cost or... Uh, and the they is the importer or they being the producer uh, or the uh, distributor? Everybody, you know, yeah. everybody involved. Like, so they were like, they're like, hey, this is, this is going to come through. This is with, you know, this pricing is with uh, tariffs. Uh, we, as a company, you know, the distributor, the importer is going to take a piece of that burden. We're going to take a piece of that burden. Um, we know it's uh, a little higher, um, but we just wanted to be completely transparent. And that sort of transparency and honesty was like uh, really valuable because there were there were situations where uh, I was. I would I happily paid uh more for an item uh but I knew that it wasn't as much as it could have been because everybody was trying to make it work. Um so I just think that was a really smart way of of doing businesses but trust me I mean, like I have a lot of friends uh who are importers who just got clobbered. <laughs> I know by no fault of their own their business just comes unraveled uh and it it just that was really tough to see. And when you think to like the way in which you build verticals on your list, right, where you have maybe five or six vintages of the same particular wine, right? Do you think that down the road, people are going to see that price on the list being upwards of 25% more? Maybe we can give an example like Rioja or something like that or Burgundy, whatever current releases, which is maybe what, 2018, 2019 for some of these things, will people see that price and think to themselves, oh, that is in this vertical for 25% too much just because they bought it during the tariffs? Um, yeah. Will this be an advantage that people avoid purchasing, you know, down the road as a result of that? Probably not, but it, like you can definitely help tell that story to your guests because along with, you know, that one or two vintages that might stick out as being tariffed and more expensive on a vertical, uh, there might be vintages missing. Oh, why are we missing this vintage? It's a great vintage. And like, yeah, absolutely. But remember back in 2020, no one was buying anything and we didn't either. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're, you're just going to have those conversations. Oh, why is this one so much more expensive? Now you have to understand that like take, you know, Bordeaux's one thing, take the, the, the curve on how Burgundy's increased over the last 20 years. So people are used to seeing that really steep, steady increase, right? So tariffs were just like, oh, well, it's just going to be more than more than more. Uh, people who know and who are shopping in that category have seen prices get absolutely bananas, right? So you're, you're less likely to see or hear a complaint there, but you can simply just communicate back to the guest. Well, that was our tariff year. You know, that's kind of is what it is. <laughs> um, is, there, is there a place that you're excited about either in France, Spain, part of Western Europe, that you are even more excited about now because of these tariffs you're probably always looking for things that are drinking 
incredibly above their price point, right? Things that punch above their weight. Is there a region of the world that you want to highlight or a part of France or Spain or Italy that you find to be an incredible value? Yeah. So as, as difficult, as extraordinarily high, all right, as burgundy prices are right now, I still think that, you know, the winemaking is getting better. There's places, there's nooks and crannies where you can find value, but I still think it's a category on the whole that's still undervalued. So that's, it's crazy to say that, but I do believe that. It's a hell of a hill to die on, sir. And I, and I it risk sounding like a, like a sommelier cliche, you know, I, I know that. Um, and I don't want to be that, but the love affair runs very deep. <clears throat> well, you haven't mentioned dry Riesling yet, so we still have plenty of sommelier <laughs> cliches to work with. <laughs> All right, good, good, good. Yeah, and Sherry, I guess. The uh, Northern Rhone, you know, again, I'm I'm running the risk of sounding like a complete cliche here, but uh, Northern Rhone, because I think there's, there's again, the same story of the winemaking getting better in young people and things uh, uh, drinking way better than they're priced. Uh, however, where I... I, I think Barolo is is the great one that people can still buy, with a few exceptions, still get into a wonderfully classic example of a world-class wine region for a reasonable amount of money right now. Because, you know, you can get into a great producer, uh, like a superlative top, a top of his game producer in Barolo for the price of what, Premier Cru Burgundy? You want to I mean, shout out a couple of those producers that you're really digging right now? Yeah, at the risk of <laughs> the the, the yeah, twenty yeah, million yeah. I mean, listeners look, out here are all going to go out and buy it yeah, despite the price. Right. No, I know, I know, I know. Um, all right, so so we're gonna. There's still there's still classics, right? So if you can find it, you know Giuseppe Rinaldi. Uh, if you can grab it, you know Bartolo Mascarello. Um, if you can get it, it's still one of the great underpriced houses, Berlotto, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, it, this was like, I've always loved Brovia. I think like it's just a matter of time before everybody kind of catches up to, to that uh, love affair as well. So, you know, that's a, that's a, um, Silvio Altari's wines are just getting more and more uh, precise and, and complex. And I think they're doing great work over there too. So that's why I did the song, man. That's why I did the song. Yeah. The Nebbiolo song. So this is the part of the episode where you get to plug something. Um, what do you want to plug? What do you want to let people know? About? Uh, let's do shameless self-promotion then. Space City Psalms, you know, YouTube, Instagram, you know, we're going to start getting a lot more content out there. With me and my buddy, Frank Bullington, who does uh, the music with me. And uh, look forward to some new songs that are almost done. Hell yeah, dogs. And some merch. I love it. Uh, but thanks, dude. It was great. It was a lot of fun. Cool, man. Cheers. Thank you so much. So something that never actually came up in this episode that I think is worth noting is all of these tariffs that went into effect were a punishment for European wines because of some shit with Airbus and Boeing. It was not even related to the wine industry. So all of this to say the tariffs sucked. Now you've heard from three different people in three different sides of the beverage business telling you how much they sucked. And now you're having a podcaster tell you how much they suck. So believe me. They are not good. Um, But thank you for listening to another episode. You can stream every episode of By the Glass on any streaming platform. Most of you are probably doing it on Spotify and Apple, but we're also on all those other random services like Stitcher, Audible, all those things. So keep on listening. Smash that subscribe button. If you haven't written a review, do that. It helps other people find the podcast. Um, And yeah, talk to you next week. Bye.